This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that puts the royal in royal commission. Or maybe it's royal pain in the ass. Anyway, I'm Scott Phillips, <laughs> and with me as always is Dr. Aniaban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you? I oh, mate, I well. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of I feel better now, but the Royal Commission is still kind of lingering. I'm still a little bit unhappy. Mm. I'm very unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what, Phils? We are going to talk about the Royal Commission. This is going to be a bit of a special podcast. If you've been listening for a little while, you would have heard a couple of PS episodes. So what we're going to do, we're going to have our normal podcast. We're going to wrap it up, and then we're going to go into a little bit more detail, a little bit more into the weeds on the Royal Commission. If you're a Royal Commission wonk or you simply want to hear us rant a little bit longer, feel free to hang around at the end of the podcast. But we'll keep it a little bit shorter on the Royal Commission up front because... Frankly, not everyone's as excited or unhappy as we are, and uh, you know we will know you want a little bit of a little bit of everything. So we'll do our normal podcast, and then we'll come back to the Royal Commission a little bit at the end after we sign off. So as I said, when we sign off, feel free to leave us, or you can hang around and hear a little bit of ranting. We'll try and make it fun and interesting, and a little bit educational as well. But the choice will be yours, and it saves you having to fast forward through the boring stuff if that's where we get to. So we are going to talk about the Royal Commission, Doc. Funnily enough, a few of the Royal Commission's findings, some of the fallout from the Commission, which gets kind of messier by the day. Mm-hmm. We're also going to talk about trade talks. The whole Trump G thing was kind of off the radar, and now guess what? Overnight in the US, traders have decided it's back on. This is we're recording this on Friday morning, so Thursday night US time, Australian time. The market kind of went, oh, what if there's no trade deal done? So we'll talk about that. We will talk about the potential, the new potential for lower interest rates, which will make you happy, Doc. Although it may uh, it may scupper your hopes for lower house prices. We'll talk about that. Oh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll talk about some CEO departures and not just the NAB CEO. And if we have some time, we'll dip into the full mailbag. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. Doc. Oh, I, I, I was going to say something. Oh, okay. I was on a lead in then. I was, I was, I've just kind of stalled and stopped yeah, 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 and fallen you, you, over. There. My, my company is again winning, you know. we Among the race we have, my company is again now the most <laughs> valuable company in the world. If you want to glow in the short term, mate, feel free, because the long term is going to hurt uh, you. you, so you, you, you I won't begrudge well, you your short term well, wins, you know, mate. You, when you had a short term win, you know, you made sure that you <laughs> rubbed course. it in. So I'm, I'm just mentioning. <laughs> just returning favor. I don't, I don't blame you at all, mate. Yeah. I will do exactly the same thing next time I have the opportunity. I was surprised by that. So thank you for surprising me at the beginning of the podcast. There we go. From the ridiculous to the sublime, or maybe the ridiculous to the more ridiculous, <laughs> I don't really know. Commissioner Kenneth Hayne, after months and months of hearings and bankers and other things that rhyme with bankers, um, plenty of evidence given, council assisting Rowena or absolutely skewering everybody who appeared before the commission, except for some of the tales of woe from some of the people who were badly treated by the banks, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should say this podcast is sponsored by the word allegedly, because we'll be careful <laughs> about what we say and, and what we don't say. You can read between the lines as you, as you mm. feel free, fools. So... Commissioner Hayne handed down his report on Monday, or gave it to the government on Friday. They kind of looked at it over the weekend and got the political spin ready. And then Monday afternoon, it was released after the market closed. And it was kind of, I I kind of want to say a damp squib. Now, I will say up front, for myself, and I think for you, we acknowledge that the commissioner spent much, much, much more time looking at this stuff than we have. He's Mm -hmm. much more informed, spoke to the witnesses, spoke to council assisting, has has had a much more open and, and kind of detailed view of this. But... I'm kind of a little bit disappointed, and you're even more disappointed. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I thought the interim report had questions, and the final report is full uh, of questions. questions. <laughs> so let's go through some of the key ones. We won't spend too long on these. As I said, we'll do the, the PS a little bit afterwards. The first thing was there was no forced split. Some people were expecting bigger penalties for the banks in terms of having to split off their financial advice business from their, what they call in the industry, product manufacturer, so their funds, their banking, separating out who gives the advice and what they can advise. That hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. The commissioner is saying it would be a step too far. 
the financial planners though have to disclose the fact they're not independent. They can't be considered unbiased. So Commissioner Hayne hoping that those disclosures will do the job. ASIC and APRA, he's kind of given them, A, a bit of a kick in the bum, and then also asked or called for a more stringent, more litigious ASIC and APRA to really bring these guys to account rather than, rather than agreeing with settlements out of court. There's going to be a fund of last resort for people who lose money with uh, financial companies but then can't get redressed because those companies go broke. Also, some forced mediation for rural and, and farm loans. There's been a lot of evidence given about the fact that some of the farms were foreclosed on without really even uh, the, the, the borrowers being in, in uh, arrears. Um, also, too... The mortgage broking industry, probably the biggest losers mm. from the report, even if they're not necessarily the biggest losers from what subsequently happens, because Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said of the 76 recommendations, they are, to use his phrase, taking action on all 76. But the mortgage broker one, the action they're taking is kicking can down the road for three years mm. and then having a review to see if they're going to do what the commissioner suggests. So mm. that's pretty much never, right? In, in political terms, three years is a parliamentary term, so we can call that never. Mm. You're kind of putting, punting that into the next electoral term. Other than that, the government's saying they'll do everything. The opposition had already said they're going to do everything regardless, even before they saw the, <laughs> saw the report recommendations handed down. That's very prudent. <laughs> so with those as the key... Did I miss any of the key highlights? No, that's it. All right. What do you think, mate? What are the, what are the wins and losses? What are the highlights and lowlights from the Royal Commission's report? So I, I think the, the financial planners must declare... I think, I mean, uh, that should implicitly be happening mm-hmm. should have been happening and and you know surely a financial sh- planner wouldn't try and do but, the wrong thing you know, uh, you know why why should they right <laughs> um but but i think maybe enforcing that i think so i think mm. what i like about the report is the revitalization of asic and our yep. is is really solid yep. um fund of last resort is really solid and um then you know declaring non-independence aspect is mm-hmm. really solid mm-hmm. I, I you know i'm the the force split of you know wealth management versus banking versus retail banking and mm. all those sort of things, I mean it's not necessary. Maybe some of these banks are actually going to do it anyways, mm. right? Some mm. of these banks have already said. I think three of the four. And three of the four have said Westpac is the only one which has said oh, we'll continue, mm. you know. But they've said there's there's going to be increased costs and for compliance reasons and things like yeah. that. Right? And Westpac's business is BT, I think. Is BT. BD, uh, MLC BD. is being sold off from NAB. Commonwealth Bank's getting rid of theirs. I think ANZ is a sander. I want to say, or maybe that's uh, old. Commonwealth is, I think, floating it, mm-hmm. right? I think that's what they're in trying theory. to do. In theory. We'll oh, see everybody they can well, get for yeah, it. They're trying to float. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, maybe maybe that's fair in the sense that, you know, banks probably would have mm. realized that, mm. well, you know, it's better off being independent if that's what the, you know, the regulatory bodies want. So I think that, that that's all cool. Yep. Um, I thought where it was, I think, I think the couple of things, I think one, um, I think the focus on brokers, to some mm. extent, I think is, is, in my view, misleading. Okay. And it, it sort of hits the... Misleading in terms of being wrong or just not getting the big issues? Oh, it seems to me it doesn't address bigger issues. Like, I mean, you know, what what are the brokers facilitating? The brokers mm. are basically bringing a bunch of, you know, loan options to people mm. and selling them on. And for that, they get a commission from the banks, mm-hmm. right? So, in other words, the brokers are basically matching deals to people who right, want to borrow. Right. So they're the deal makers and they're Classic making intermediaries, right? The, yeah, and they're making the, yeah, and they're making a small cut of it. Mm-hmm. The the responsibility, you know, for lending mm-hmm. and lending properly still should be with the bank, mm-hmm. right? And then you know that hasn't really changed. But what you know the brokers are being told is that you know you need to be, 
you need to declare your your conflicts and you can't take money from the banks you need to take money from uh, the individuals now that right. basically changes the dynamics right who's going to pay say 2000 bucks so right now mortgage brokers you get a mortgage broker they organize you a loan yeah doesn't cost you a cent no nope. the bank who wins the business kicks back an amount of money to the broker both upfront and then what they call a trailing commission yep. so over the cut next couple of years they get a yep. little bit of a, a cut what the Royal Commission has recommended, which the government is not proposing to do immediately, is that they're saying, look, no, the bank should no longer pay the brokers. It should only come from the consumer's pocket. Yeah. And you're saying... Well, I, I think that's problematic. You know, people, when the people see a bill coming in, right, I mean, it, it changes the behavioral dynamics of things, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people go to mortgage brokers <laughs> yeah. right now because Absolutely. they get a deal. Yep. But if now to get the deal, I actually have to pay up front like 2000 bucks. I'm not <laughs> going to go to the bank. I'm going to do the research on my own, yeah. whatever research yeah. I can do. So I think it changes changes the the dynamics i think that you know it kills the industry and it, it seems to you know there's no real problem other than if you assume that okay brokers are pushing mm. to, for people to borrow more but even if they were pushing people to borrow more it's their choice right i yeah. mean if they want to borrow more it's their choice it's still uh, in my view the 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 underlying you know quality of loans and the p- ability of people to pay should depend on the banks. The banks should be able to decide whether or not individuals can carry that loan. So, yep. you, you know, if you are saying that people are being, you know, schemed in some mm-hmm. some way, then the, I would say the banks are then responsible. And if people mm-hmm. can borrow more, let them borrow more. That's their choice. Yep. Yep. Right. So, to me, it doesn't address the lending question. Doesn't address, and maybe this is not part of the the mandate, but it doesn't address the lending question. It doesn't address the question of you know, um, you know, people negative gearing beyond you know, uh, you know, up the wazoo mm-hmm. as much as they can and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, it doesn't address those things. It doesn't address i guess systemic risks um it addresses other issues which which is which is fine but i think you know it, it left the bigger um uh, this is an, in my view an opportunity to get the banking sector um you know organized mm. and in in a way ready to handle crises mm. uh this in my view has actually not done anything for for that side i i can't i kind of agree i mean to some degree that was never the intent of the royal commission it was to handle um alleged or possible misconduct rather than systemic kind of risk or otherwise. I will say for what it's worth, I think APRA has done a decent amount of work on that already by increasing the capital um, ratios of the banks, requiring them to hold more capital for every loan made. So there's some, there's some benefit there, but I, I do agree with you at some level. He doesn't do anything about it, and so by definition, nothing's been done about it, and that's really an issue. I have a, I have a bit of a – I can kind of go both ways on the mortgage broker issue. I think if you add incentives to any system – the more incentives you add, the more possibility of, if not straight out wrongdoing, at least adverse outcomes. And so mm. I'm kind of in general in favour of removing whatever incentives would lead people toward a bad decision. Now, to your point, that isn't the only area of incentive. That isn't the only area of responsibility. Um, but to some degree, if there's five people cheering you on to borrow more and now there's only three, uh, you know, I kind of reckon that's still that's still a net positive, right? It's, it's moving in the right direction, at least in, in theory. The, the, the biggest cheerers are the, are the lenders, right? And the non-bank lenders. Oh, I mean, totally. they're, they're the ones well, who want you to borrow. some of them, right? So... Yeah, well, that's right. I see. I see yes, 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 that's true. Also, too, we should think about the impact. So, if you take mortgage brokers out of the market, mm. the one, the winners now are the big four banks. Exactly, because most of them have accounts with those guys. Mm. We're less likely to go to the fifth or sixth or tenth exactly. lender mm. to try and work out whether I get a better rate. Yeah. You kind of jump online. Okay, I'll check CBA. I'll check NAB. I'll check Westpac. Oh, maybe I'll do ANZ. Maybe one or two credit unions or kind of regional banks, if I think of it. But the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth biggest regional banks or credit unions yep. or building societies, you're not going to look because you, you don't think of it, let alone bother taking the time and effort. You kind of figure, well, close enough is close enough. And so that's the downside, right, is that you may well have consumers actually paying even more 
after the fact, if they don't have that competition, then it would have cost them for the mortgage broker. And, in, the first and, place. in many ways, you know, if the issue was the brokers were actually, you know, making people borrow more, then I would say they're you know, refinancing. And basically, you know, every time you have paid down your loan and then you refinance up to like 90%, that's exactly the same thing. You know, every bank is yeah. trying to do the same thing, getting people to refinance so they get the business and then in return for incentives. So, I mean, the incentive structure, you know, incentive structure is still there, right? Right. In different ways. Yep. So, it, maybe it reduces competition. It's actually bad for the small guys, maybe. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's, that's absolutely 50 50. Motley full money financial advice for real people not trust fund hippies sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m let's go back to the states we kind of like to Mm. well the old saying as i've said many times when the u.s sneezes australia catches a cold our market we're recording this at 9 53 a.m as i as i say these words (laughs) and so in seven minutes we'll know how the market responds and by the time you hear this you will know um but more more importantly on a bigger you know we're not we're not short termers here at the motley fool but on the kind of medium long-term story the risks of kind of maybe a trade deal doesn't get done have all of a sudden reared their ugly heads now i've written before uh recently that i'm pretty sure donald trump would be Kind of half of him is cheering for this to not actually happen, right? He'd laugh to punch China in the nose with one more big tariff if they don't get this deal done. That's the kind of negotiator he is. He kind of puts a deadline in place. They won't give a deal. He'll ram some tariffs through the day after, the minute after. Um, all of a sudden, they'll go back to the table and we'll end up with this another round of negotiations. It's kind of his style. So I, I reckon he's itching for a fight. He's kind mm. of that, that sort of negotiator. And that may have its benefits, by the way. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. But if I was a betting man, uh, I reckon he's sort of, you know, on one hand, hoping he gets what he wants. The other hand, hoping he doesn't, at least up front, so he gets to have another fight. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, y- you know, maybe th- it is his style to maybe try to bargain more, and maybe that's what exactly is happening mm. right now. Is that you know maybe the maybe the tariff uh, reductions on tariff on imports of cars and things like that, mm. or you know the numbers probably are not matching up with what what he wants, mm. and the tariffs on other like you know agriculture produce and things like that. So. Mm. Um, it could also get ugly. I mean, both sides could get entrenched. But, I, you know, I think the fact that the China's economy is starting to hurt, <laughs> it probably gives me hope that, you know, um, it gives me the hope that you'd probably, you know, want to compromise sooner than later. So I, I'm hopeful that a compromise would be reached. Whether or not it happens before the deadline, I believe that's 31st of March. Yes, the 90-day um, deadline that was kind of imposed, I think, by America, but at least agreed to by both parties would be yeah. a 90-day truce while they tried to work stuff out. Yeah. It's kind of getting a little close, right? It's getting a little bit, a little yeah, bit uncomfortably close, uncomfortable. and markets will start uh, yeah, to worry. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I, I think there's going to be increased volatility, but I'm hopeful that this mm. will get resolved. And I think that's so. That's the that's the story, right? And, and we we are we, we tend as investors and as, as as speakers as educators to say, you know what, volatility will come. Kind of don't do anything. Just keep keep going along your merry way, right? Keep investing in great mm. businesses, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it also behoves us to say to, to our listeners in particular, so our readers and members, don't forget that this. Volatility happens. Mm. It's very possible, very probable even. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree probable. I'd say probable. That will get a lot of volatility as we lead up to March 31. Whether or not a deal is done on March 25, mm. people are going to be freaking out. Oh, yeah. And so there's going to be more volatility to come, unless, unless somehow they come to a deal early, which is always possible. Mm. Um, when that happens, it'll be tempting to think, oh, no, what's going on? I better do something. And whatever that something is you can think of, you'll probably do. Um, just, just remember not to kind of freak out about that sort of stuff. When volatility happens, when markets drop, um, there'll be plenty of talking heads out there saying this is what you should do in the face of gloom and doom and all that kind of stuff. Worth remembering, too, the ASX is now at a four-month high. Mm-hmm. After all of that grief of November and December, all the horrible, horrible things, we've said this before, mm. 
it, you know, at the time we were talking about how the market was down, mm. was down 12, 15% from its August mm. highs, I think. Um, it was all terrible. It was all terrible. You know, I think, and we were saying, guys, just chill out. These, mm. these things happen. Now, it's nice to be kind of proven right in a relatively short term. It could have taken another year to be proven mm. right for what it's worth. But markets recover. Markets go on to, to higher highs over time. So just remember that when, you know, consider this your, your advance warning. When things get a bit messy, when they get a little bit uncomfortable, we knew this was going to happen. You knew this was going to happen. Um, invest through it anyway because remember in November, December we said the same thing and this is the way things always turn out. As it can take a little bit longer, markets could have fallen further. We have no, uh, we're no prognosticators when it comes to short-termism but long-term we're pretty sure. I think you'd agree with me, Doc, that mm-hmm. the future is pretty bright and we should keep investing anyway. Absolutely. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking of future being bright... The RBA doesn't quite agree as strongly as it used to. I know. So during the week, Philip Lowe, the governor of the RBA, came out and effectively said they're prepared to cut interest rates if the economy is weaker and maybe things are a little bit weaker than they had previously thought. Mm. There's a marked change from where the RBA was previously. Mm -hmm. They kind of were thinking everything was okay, pretty happy with what was going on. Next rate rise was going to be up, just matter was when. This is a decent change in rhetoric, if not in actual decision-making just yet. Mm. Are they are they responding to what's happening in the market? Are they responding to a change in sentiment? Are they worried about the future? What what do you make of this change in public rhetoric, at least, from the RBA? So, I, I mean, a couple of things. One, I think there's been uh, these retail surveys and uh, sentiment estimates and things like that, which mm. suggest that, you know, retail is, is suffering um, as a sentiment is in negative. So, I think RBA is reacting to that. I think mm. the problem RBA has, I think RBA has got a fantastic, well, not a fantastic, that's actually a big problem, I would say. Right. The problem is that it doesn't have much room. And <laughs> <laughs> so RBA has basically dug itself into the situation where it doesn't actually have much room or flexibility. And I think this is really dangerous considering how, you know, the household debt situation we've got. So yep. if the economy is actually, you know, this is not really good news in the sense that even the economy is not really doing well. So we're going to cut rates to try to boost the economy. Mm-hmm. But we really don't have much room to cut rates. And if the other guys are increasing rates, we are kind of host because, you know, everything we do is going to be balanced out by the other guys' increasing rates, right? Fair though to say they didn't really have much choice. I don't know if they've necessarily painted themselves in all corner. They haven't had the opportunity to raise rates before now. So it's kind of hard to blame them, isn't it, for not um, being able to? Yet the fact they don't have much room is real, but... I don't think it's their fault not having much room, is it? Well, hindsight is like 2020, you know. I would, <laughs> I would have raised rates last year. Yeah. I mean, you know, economists wouldn't are Wouldn't it have made all... this problem worse, though? If the economy is weak now, wouldn't it have brought that weakness forward? I'd, t- I'd take that situation <laughs> over, over the current situation where, you know, if the other guys, you know, if is, assume this, the deals get done in, you know, in 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 the US, mm. between US and China, mm-hmm. the US feds go back. I mean, and the, I think the only saving grace here is the US fed has said that we are also not increasing rates. Mm. Right now, we are in a wait and watch mode, and maybe that's what everybody's going to do, wait and watch. Mm then we are fine. But if they go back to increasing rates, I mean, we've got a problem then. So, you know, being being at least somehow caught up mm. uh, would have helped. Now, you know, you could point to Japan and say, well, they've been in like, you know, they've been the, mm. the greatest QE of all time, you know, being negative and whatnot for like, what, 20 years or something like that. So mm. maybe we're getting to that zone and it hasn't really, I mean, you know, they haven't had much growth, but... I think that's true. I'm going to take a slightly different view, mate. And, and you're right about you know rates. Uh, any any macroeconomic decision, whether that be fiscal or monetary, has its impact. And fiscal being taxes and spending, monetary being interest rates, um, has its implications. Right. I actually, if I if I was a betting man, I'd be happy for the US to increase rates, only because that makes Australian exports competitive by definition, because it should push the dollar down, and that would desperately help out a struggling Australian economy. So, to some degree, as a net exporter, we would benefit from a higher US interest rate, which would mean a higher US dollar, lower Australian dollars, which makes Australia's exports much more competitive. 
and frankly, it kind of puts a little bit of inflation back into our system as well. So I, I'm not so sure higher rates in the US would be a problem for us unless they cause economic kind of slowdown globally. That would be the, the big risk. But if they don't, to some degree, we'd actually benefit from that, I reckon. Yeah, because so we're already at 70 cents. What do you want? You want 50 cents? I, th- <laughs> I, I would be very surprised. I'm not a, I'm not a prognosticator, but I, I would imagine we'll end the year lower than we started it if, okay. I, was, if I was a right. betting man. Okay. You want to have a bet on that one as well? or? Uh, no. <laughs> you sure? No. Nope. I, I don't want to take too much of your money after my, after my Amazon bet in a few years' time. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I, like to, I like to do the bets, which I think I can win. This one, I, I have actually no idea where the currency is going to go. No, me uh, So I'm not going to take that bet. In the but, other, but, one, other one, I'm relatively sure I'm going to win, so I'm, I'm uh, taking that bet. So. All right. Uh, the, the, and we won't get into this in detail, but the economic orthodoxy suggests that some of the key uh, drivers of, of exchange rate differentials are things like economic growth and differentials in interest rates. And so the orthodoxy should hold, and, and we know that practice doesn't always follow theory, uh, that the wider the interest rate discrepancy, the, the lower the dollar should be for the country, the lower the currency should be for the country that has the lower rates. So as that gap widens, it should, all things being equal, push the Australian dollar down, which should, all things being equal, be good for the Australian economy, but we'll see. It could also result in capital being pulled out of the country. Yeah, it could. So it could. So this, this gives, you know, puts and takes here. So oh, I, I, I take yeah. it. We'll see how we go. Yeah. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Back to the Royal Commission only slightly because I want to talk about what, I, what, I, what I'm loosely terming and with a bit of tongue firmly in cheek, the CEO killing season. This has been, <laughs> this has been a hell of a week. Mm-hmm. So CEO Andrew Thorburn from the NAB has, has walked the plank. Um, whether he's been pushed or worked voluntarily, I think we can assume someone was holding his hand as he walked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken Henry, the chair of the bank, is also going once they've replaced Thorburn. Mm. And we had a couple of others. The CEO of David Jones, now owned by, by Woolworth South Africa, but still mm. a dominant, well, less dominant, a dominant player in department stores. The mm. department stores are less relevant. Mm. Uh, he's going. And the CEO of a sports analytics company, Catapult, is also leaving the company. Mm. I, I'm... I'm, I'm always torn on CEO departures, right? I think mm. to some degree, we expect too much of CEOs. Mm. You know, if I took over a company tomorrow and then a year later you said, what have you done lately? What I've done pales into significance to the company I, in, I inherited, right? The momentum, mm. positive or negative, of whatever business I take over, the, the first two years of my term is probably going to rely more on what was done in the past than mm. what I'm actually doing now. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, there's got to be accountability, right? So it's hard to know where to draw the line. I don't know if decapitating a company every time the wind changes is necessarily good for morale. I don't know if it's good for continuity or culture. I don't know if it's good for long-term success. Even, you know, I mean, I'm no fan of bank CEOs, but I'm not entirely sure Andrew Thorburn did much more wrong in terms of kind of the actual operations of the bank. Much He did much worse than the other bank CEOs. If he's got to go, then kind of surely everyone's got to go. And if, he mm. do, if they don't have to go, then seems like he's going to be pushed overboard as a, as a PR exercise. He was not politically correct. That seems to be he, the problem, He didn't right? sound too sorry. He basically just pointed to the, you know, the problem being, well, you know, this problem in our IT infrastructure was not that great. What do you expect? Uh, and, and, uh, and maybe, you know, yeah, I've... I wouldn't say I feel <laughs> for, 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 for him. Um, he's, he's not, he's not going to struggle for, for he's, dope, he's, that. He's, he's not struggling. So I, I wouldn't say I feel for him. But I feel that, you know, he's been made a scapegoat. Uh-huh. Um, you know, basically told the truth. And, you know, that might mean that he didn't sound sorry enough. But I mean, you know, telling that if, if, if you get fired for telling the truth, then that's a bit of a problem. And I think it, it's a bit of a farce. Well, that's that the thing, sense. right? Yeah, so it's farcical. In so. a different universe, Thorburn thinks exactly what he thinks. Yeah. But said at the commission, Commissioner, I'm terribly, terribly sorry. We are horrible people. I'm covering myself in sackcloth and ashes. And we, we, we've done the wrong thing. We're going to do things better. And the commissioner says, well done, Mr. Thorburn. Off you go. Thorburn still has his job at the NAB. Yeah. And he may not think any differently. In fact, I would wager that at least one of the big bank CEOs says, 
well, I, I think exactly what Thurburn said. I just didn't say it. Yeah. And that CEO is going to keep their job. Yeah. It, it surely is a win of spin over substance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. In fact, I've read some, you know, there's, there's some interviews that he has given which would suggest that he actually... He's he's not a bad guy in that sense, mm. you know. You know, he he probably thinks that the, the banking industry has gone too far. In fact, he has said so in some interviews right. that the banking industry has gone too far, too much greed, too much, you know, putting profits over customers and things like that. So he has said those things, but he just didn't say those things. He he actually pointed to the problems, or maybe right, and, right. and pointed to the problems is a good thing because you know if you realize what the pro- problems are. That's what you want to fix, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, there is a cultural problem, but there's a problem of, you know, systems and banks have been here for so long. You yep. know, we have a pretty complex banking system. But with that, you need the systems and the processes and the implementation to make mm-hmm. sure that everything is right, right? And frankly, the people who know what's going on, every time you choose, you lose a CEO, as I said, yeah. you kind of end up back trying to, someone's exactly. got to relearn the business. Yep. What about DJs and Catapult, mate? Those CEOs are gone. What, what do you make of uh, those departments? So da- David Jones, uh, I don't follow that closely. Um, what you I, strike me as a, as, a, as a department store retail kind of investor. I, I, should, I, be, say. I should be, right? But, you know, <laughs> but the only thing I know that they've had, what, four CEO changes in, what, two years oh, or something man. like that. that. That sounds too much, like, too much churn. Um, <laughs> same thing though, right? Like you kind of wonder what they're buying. And this, is, this isn't a public company. It's owned by Woolworths South Africa, as I said, mm. which is not the same as our Woolworths. Mm. Um, to some degree, that's, it kind of. What do they expect? Like, what does the CEO turn it around? Quick months? turn it around, right? <laughs> I mean, that's madness, right? Like, eventually, yeah. someone will turn it around, but it'll probably be luck by then. The business will have fallen so far that things have to stabilize at some point, at least from a sales perspective. Maybe they don't, but yeah. but frankly, if someone does manage to get lucky enough to be appointed the day things turn around, yeah. I mean, think about it. Banks, the bank CEOs, the bank problems have been in place for 10, 15 years, right? Yeah, they're like and fifteen years worth of bank CEOs have have made a fortune, look like look like geniuses. Yeah. All of a sudden, the poor, and again, I won't feel too sorry for them because I don't necessarily deserve our sympathy, but the poor current crop are the ones who are carrying the can for a decade plus of, of alleged wrongdoing. Yeah. And yet, they're the ones who are carrying the can. The other guys don't have to hand back their bonuses. They still look like geniuses and they're on yeah. boards well, and, and, you know, the, doing the corporate the speaking decade, gig. You know, the decade plus of, you know, high returns on equity, right? I mean, those yeah, high right. returns on equity have, right, right. have come from somewhere, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, the part is, you know, running a good bank, but a part of, you know, you have skimmed on other parts and that's, yeah. that's helped your return on equity. So, that's how yeah, you do yeah. it, right? All, yeah, those, exactly. all those fees yeah. that weren't, weren't provided, there was no service provided exactly. for, that's pure profit. Pure, by pure, pure, you know, 100%, 100% margin, right? There's no one there to cost you any money. Yeah. Yeah. On to the last one, you know, catapult is something that we have recommended in unfortunately at this point at least mm-hmm. I would say at extreme opportunities and a million uh, dollar portfolio unfortunately uh, unfortunately so I, I think I, I know the catapult story a little bit more so I can like unpack it a little bit I'll try All to right. do it so quick so sports analytics tell me a little bit about that first okay so catapult basically does a few things it makes these hardware devices which are called like wearables which you wear and, and you know it's like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch it's like a Fitbit and an Apple Watch but unlike it's you know strapped to your body yeah. right and it's used by elite Sports people, like you know, it it might be used by those people in NHL, AFL, okay. and things like that, right? All those acronyms. So I know rugby league and and, uh, and rugby union best. Mm. And on the back of their shirts, you'll see a little kind of oblongy shaped uh, thing sticking out of the top of their shirts, mm. just under their necks. Mm-hmm. That's that's a catapult or catapult like device, right? Mm. That's tracking what the player's doing, the heart rates, how uh, fast energy, they're moving, which right direction speed. they're moving. So it can be used to train okay. them. It can be used to manage their, you know, um, injuries. It can be used to improve their performance okay. and and so on and so forth. How long right? they're walking for, running for, how their body's right. recovered from strenuous. Right. Activity. Well, that's one part of catapult's business. Catapult's got also what they call video analytics. So they've they own, you know, you can look at the videos mm-hmm. and then run analytics on what happened on the field and ah. you know get an insight into know how how the teams were playing it's kind of cool it's kind of cool they also have other things like you know, the managed data on the cloud which they call athlete management system mm-hmm. right and and then they kind of helps with like injuries and perf- 
kind of yeah, so you know, basically put, right? no, put all the data that you get and ah, put it on okay. the cloud and makes it cloud you know it's a cloud managed system that's gonna know. be worth at least 20 cents putting cloud in the name doesn't it exactly <laughs> well it should be more <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I mean i mean as a business it's a neat it's a neat australian business uh, the ip was developed here in australia mm-hmm. it's a you know it's been used by teams all over the world so you know that's that's a it's a tick in the in the box for uh, Australian technology being used uh, world over. Okay, there's going to be a big but here, though, because the CEO's now left. So something's going wrong. So, so the thing here is with Catapult, Catapult had a different CEO. So one of the co-founders um, or the previous group who essentially founded the company, mm-hmm. you know, they were you know they were running the business, and right. then they decided uh, sometime in April 2017 that they need to get a professional CEO. Mm-hmm. So then they hired a professional CEO. The, uh, so they hired Joe Powell from uh, Seek. Okay. Um, so he was running um, their education division um, at at Seek. Mm-hmm. Right. Before before hiring uh, Joe Powell, the 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 board worked with him in consulting position. Then they had a three month uh, what I would call transi- transition. Mm-hmm. Right. So where, where they had co CEOs, you know, help the transition. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? So, uh, I mean, in, in, and the, the the news yesterday was like a bombshell. Basically, said, oh, mm. you know, we need to get a new CEO because we want somebody who's going to be have a global view, who's going to be an experienced executive who has the, you know, this and that, and uh, is going to create share, shareholder value. And one of, you know... Uh, so, uh, so they won, they won buzzword bingo. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, well, as uh, <laughs> as as um, uh, in our colleague Andrew Leggett basically said, he said, I think the key word there is shareholder value. Basically, the share price hasn't gone up in these eighteen months, and they're very pissed with that. <laughs> so, so basically, he's being he's being blamed for not managing the share price. Well, I mean, that, allegedly, that, 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 that could be one interpretation because because I would say that you know if you wanted an experienced CEO, you got one. Mm-hmm. You had the full opportunity right. to actually vet it. Right. You had a consulting relationship first, then you had a three month transition. If that three month transition basically showed this person is no good, you could have fired that person at that time, mm-hmm. right? The results seem to suggest that the actually the core business is doing well. Right. So why get rid of the CEO? So maybe so, there's something else. There's a power struggle maybe between okay. board, between the board and the CEO. And none of this is good because. I mean, you know, I call it like, you know, having a company like without a CEO is like a headless chicken. It's mm. going to be running around doing stuff. Which, well, it's uh, kind of back to the whole sort of killing season week, right? Like the, lots of CEOs are seemingly paying the price for a lack of short-term performance. Short, short-term performance, maybe disagreement with the board. Right. I mean, you know, if the board is all powerful, has got insiders who own a lot of the stock mm. and, you know. Um, it does it, seem too that so they had this what they call prosumer, which I hate as a term, but yeah. professional consumer, kind of that mid-range between not the weekend runner, right. not the not the professional sports team, but right. the kind of the think about your kind of your your, your local rugby team or your yeah. local you know whatever team. They're kind of you know they're weekend warriors. They're, they're pretty good, not not top grade. That prosumer, so professional consumer. Yep. That hasn't been doing very well. I, if I was a betting man, it is board discord. I'd say there's different views on maybe what they can do with that part of the business. Does that seem likely to you or well, do you have a different th- take? That could be a possibility. Now, the thing is the presumer business was not floated by this new CEO. It was already there on the horizon with the previous management team, which is essentially coming back. Um, ah, okay. So, so maybe so, he's being blamed for not doing it well enough. Well, you know, maybe it's maybe the market. See, the, the thing is that it is worthwhile something to try. Maybe mm. the, you know, maybe he wants to turn, you know dial it back because it's not you know delivering the returns one would think mm-hmm. one would need to make it sustainable, right? Um, and and maybe um, the board doesn't agree with that. So it could be all sorts of things. I just think that you know it's too like you know less than eighteen months or something like that is mm. too short a time to judge. 
um, mm. is CEO's ability to create shareholder value. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's very short-sighted on the, on the part of the board without knowing actually what has transpired. Now, if there is, you mm. know, some fraud going on or some accounting right, scandal right, right. going on, I mean, they did lose a C- CFO as well. So, mm. I mean, it, it adds <laughs> to... Uh, not that we're it, saying that is the case, by the way, to be no, very, no, very I'm, clear. No, I'm not, not saying, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, absolutely not saying, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we moved it to hold, we, so we didn't sell it, so just, just to make it clear. So, it's not that, you know, we think there's something happening, mm. but... It's just a bit disconcerting when you have so many management changes. It could just be a simple power struggle, you know, which happens, you know, people think, well, it's my company and how could this, these guys come and, you know, take it over and turn the DNA into their DNA. So, yeah. I was going to say who'd be a CEO, but I'd put my hand up if they're going to pay me a couple of million bucks to get fired. You know, at the, in, I take that. <laughs> well, in, 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 this, in this situation, yeah. I would actually, I was thinking, who would want to be a CEO of Catapult? Because even if, oh, if they even well, what's, if, Mate, I'll, I'll volunteer if the pay packet's high enough. Oh, if they give you like you know, if they give you twenty million dollars, you take I, it. But, you I, know, mate, I wouldn't even need two million. I'll take two. How's that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't go there for two million. Really? Yes. Yeah. The will have me back but, in a couple of years. Fine. Two million bucks. Off I go. Come back in a couple of years' time. Job you, done. You, you just. I'll make, even do the podcast as well. How's that? Is that do we have a deal? <laughs> maybe you have a deal. Oh, mate, oh, mate, maybe you want to get rid of me. Maybe it's yeah. Take two million. Go off. Off you go. Uh, All right. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we're going to finish off. Uh, well, we're going to finish off the main episode. We do have a PS coming for you, but we're going to finish the main episode with a single mailbag question from Ian, and Ian's asking me a question. Uh, he said, uh, was it? "Okay, guys, you constantly note your shares, guys, in air quotes, and I listen with interest to your discussion on whether to pay down a mortgage balance versus investing in shares." And Doc, we had this conversation mm-hmm. last week, the week before. Mm-hmm. Yet a couple of weeks ago, Scott mentioned that he sold off a bunch of shares to pay off a chunk of his mortgage. So if it's not too personal a question, is that not something of a contradiction? I.e., if you truly believe the shares provided the better long-term growth prospects, why did you sell a bunch of shares to pay off a chunk of your mortgage? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work with the pod. That, that's cool to speak for podcast, Doc. Mm-hmm. I found out. That's from Ian. I think that's an excellent question, Doc. You can give me your thoughts. I'll, I'll answer the question because it's what I did, and then you can, you can tell me whether you think I'm an idiot or not. Uh, it, like everything, you know, we, we give general advice. And personal advice is always about your individual situation. Um, the first thing I'll note is I didn't sell any shares that we'd recommended in my services at The Motley Fool. We have a trading policy that would have required me to disclose those. And frankly, I'd be incredibly uncomfortable about selling anything that I recommended to our members and not have members take that same action first. So that, that's the first thing to note. Second thing is, again, in terms of that personal circumstance, we just felt as a family, my wife and I, that we didn't want to, you know, we felt better with a lower mortgage than a higher one. And so we were trading long-term compound returns for peace of mind, for sleep at night. And so for our family, that was the right thing for us to do, purely rationally, purely financially. If we had a larger mortgage and more invested in the stock market, I absolutely do think I would actually earn more in the long term. I'd have a greater wealth at retirement than by taking this decision. We took that decision purely because we felt as a family, we didn't want to have a mortgage that was as high as it was, not that it was massive, um, but we wanted to pay down a chunk of it. And so the decision was to say, let's let's take some of those uh, shares that maybe you know weren't recommendations, so they were not necessarily encumbered by either our rules or, or our ethics, um, and just sell those down and, and put some money on the mortgage, just balance our financial life a bit. And so that was that was a purely um, personal decision. Uh, like we've said all the time, there is a there is a rational decision and there is a what's best for the individual. Uh, we make recommendations that won't be right for everybody. And so that's why we always encourage people to consider how it suits their personal circumstances. Uh, for my wife and I, that was the decision we made was simply that, hey, in the circumstances, we wanted to have a lower mortgage. And yes, we're happy to trade off lower long-term returns. Now, we hope that the money was still invested, which is still a decent chunk, will more than uh, pay for our retirements. And so it wasn't a, a huge sacrifice. If I'd been in a very different situation where our investment portfolio was too small and I needed that to compound at a higher rate, we may well have done something different. But in the circumstances, we felt like that was a reasonable trade-off for us. What do you reckon? 
Well, I think it's a fair answer. In, in fact, you know, I actually do that. I, I prefer to have a smaller loan versus having a larger loan. I, I think the peace of mind aspect is actually often underrated. But mm. you know, if you if you're not you know, there's one rational thing to do, which is, you know, invest in the stock market because it has a higher return over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, you also have to know yourself, right? And and just the comfort of knowing that, you know, I have less debt versus more right. debt actually is, is very meaningful, at least to me. Yep. So again, this, this is a very personal um, circumstance thing. I think, and, you know, as you said, yeah, practically, the, you, you can just look at the rates of return and make the decision, yep. but you also need to consider many other things. So, yeah, it's a very personal decision, again, that people need to make. Yeah. I, I think, but, you know, peace of mind is particularly important. It depends on your background circumstances, of course, and, and personal histories, but for, for us, that was the right thing for us to do. I still maintain, by the way, that's going to cost me money to do and cost us money to do. So, I'm, I'm not resiling at all from the, from the point we made previously, which mm. is I absolutely believe that I will be worse off by doing this in financial, purely financial terms. But peace of mind for my wife and I, for our family, um, we feel, you know, to some degree, we haven't paid the mortgage off yet, but at the point in time at which no one can take my house away, that's a pretty good sleep at night, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, and look, you know, I haven't got a big enough mortgage, so that's likely to happen. But when you know it can't happen, um, you know, that kind of that's what life's about, right? You, at some point, you go from pure uh, um, accumulation mm. to then start to think about preservation. And so yeah. we're kind of at that point financially in life that that was important for us. Agreed. All right. That does wrap up our main portion of the podcast, and we're not going to go. So I will, though, remind you, as I always do every week, that you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Don't leave yet. There's a PS coming. But if you like what we're doing, please do give us a big five-star rating on iTunes and tell your friends. We're sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk, too, and you might find a couple of Royal Commission nerds among them. And, of course, you can get a dose of foolish insights straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. Triple M. That's not it for this week's Motley Fool Money. This is, that's it for the main part of this week's Motley Fool Money. But in any case, fool on. Fool on. Get more Motley Fool Money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Alrighty. This is the PS section. This is where I get to go for about, what, an hour and a half, I reckon, looking at Will, our producer, and whenever I, he's saying go as long as I want. Beautiful. All right, good. Uh, we'll be here for another 45 hours. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, wonder, I wonder how long, <laughs> wonder what, at what point Apple would cut us off. Guys, that's not a podcast anymore. That's a, that's a feature-length something uh, rant. Um, but I'll, Doc- I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Tim and let you know. <laughs> that's Tim Cook, your per- close personal friend? Yeah, my very, very personal friend. <laughs> is Tim Cook better than Steve Jobs? I wouldn't say better, but I do rate him as one of the best CEOs around. You do. I have a slightly different view, but we're not going to get into that. We're going to talk about the Royal Commission instead. I think he's an awesome CEO. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mate, so let's let's pick apart the Royal Commission. We're we're not going to spend too long on this, maybe another 10 or 15 minutes, but we just want to go through the individual pieces of, of the pie. And so I'm going to call out, we went kind of ran through them, but we'll have a bit, of, a bit of back and forth on the, the top four or five main points of what the, what the commissioner recommended. So the first thing, went, and we should say, by the way, share prices jumped massively on Tuesday after the Royal Commission report was handed down because mm-hmm. investors were expecting worse. They were expecting a more draconian view from, from mm-hmm. the Royal Commissioner, Kenneth Hayne. In the event, it was kind of a lot of sound and fury signifying, well, not much in, to, to uh, mangle Shakespeare's phrase. Um, the first thing was the vertical integration thing. Now, I've been a big, big proponent for vertical integration. I was very disappointed, not hugely surprised, but very disappointed that there was no vertical integration ban put in place. Um, there was an ASIC report out a year ago, almost a year ago to the day, in fact, which said that um, 75%, sorry, tell you, 68% of client money was put into the bank's own products when you saw a bank financial planner. So just over two-thirds, despite the fact the bank products were only about 25% of the approved options available to that planner. In other words, you can choose from this list of 100, but the 25 that were the banks got more, two-thirds of the money, when by rights they should have got about a quarter of the money if 
those products were equal. Now that would be that could be true on one bank. If you said Commonwealth Bank have the best products, of course their planners are going to recommend all their own things. That might be true, but the other bank planners, if they're being honest and fair, should also be recommending the Commonwealth Bank product and and vice versa. Hmm. The fact that across all the big four banks plus A and P from memory was true um, suggests to me that there is a massive amount of inherent bias for a whole lot of reasons, and we don't allege that there's any necessarily planned wrongdoing going on, but that, that, that's not really, there's something fundamentally broken about that approach. So I was a, I was a massive fan. I think there is, there is uh, investors and, and, and people getting financial advice are being done a massive disservice by definition by those numbers. You don't even have to look at the qualitative reality to know that there is something fundamentally wrong about the way products are being recommended. And so the fairest thing to my mind, and I'm, I'm very clear on this, is that there should be a break between planning, wealth management, call it what you want, advice, and the manufacturer of those products, i.e. term deposits, managed funds, wrap accounts, whatever it is. If you've got the best product, the planner recommended. If it's not the best product, then it doesn't deserve your client's money. Um, yet the stats suggest that that's exactly what's happening at the moment, that people are being underserved, misserved, badly served by the current system. What say you? So uh, I agree with you in principle, but I, I th- uh, <laughs> but I think the the industry is already starting to move away from that. So I think sure. the thing is that you know the big the big three have mm-hmm. said that they're going to, as, as we just discussed before, uh, that they're going to you know spin out or sell or separate their wealth management division. So that mm-hmm. helps mm-hmm. to to some extent. The other thing to note is that the in terms of inflows, a uh, large chunk of the inflows are now going to what they call independent platforms. Mm-hmm. So these are platforms, uh, you know, which are run by third-party companies, which, um, you know, the financial advisors are using. Right. So a lot of financial advisors have moved away from, you know, being affiliated to one of these guys to being mm-hmm. essentially truly independent and then running on these independent platforms. So, the, mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, that, that thing started a few years back, you know, maybe five, six years back, so, and, and that's just taken steam. Now the, in the, now, the question is, is it going to reduce that speed or not of, of this transition or, you know, because, of, because there was no dictate to uh, to change yep. but i think you know it's unlikely that then you know that's going to happen so i think uh, i think maybe it's okay in this case you know but it's you know it would have been better if it was more explicit but i, th- I think you know the the winds of change are anyways blowing in in the direction that you'd want and maybe um therefore it was not necessary to essentially you know maybe it's, it's an advice maybe too late kind of thing all right so you would say don't break them up no, I think breaking them up would be uh, would be the advice I would have given. But you know, the three of the banks have said that they are going to split it, right? So I mean, it's already happening. So it's one of those things where you know, do you really need um, to put it, put it down in in writing for stuff mm. that's already happening? And you know, then the independent platforms are already there. The advisors moving to independent platform. So mm. the transition is happening. Uh, it could have been given a you know boost <laughs> a bit of a kick along a bit of a kick but you know it's already happening at a pretty massive space so look i i understand that i agree with that i think to my mind though there, there deserves to be a legal distinction between the two and to my mind the whole the holy grail the gold standard should be the only person playing pay, again paying mm-hmm. the advisor planner consultant whatever it is should be the person who's getting the advice and anytime you're getting money from anyone associated with a product um, any kickback, any commission, any frankly reputational career risk. You know, your bosses, your bosses, your bosses kind of, you know, your bosses, bosses, boss, you know, works for CBA or, or, or gets a volume discount from the CBA based on the amount of volume written or whatever. Um, at some level, if the only person who pays you is the client, it's a very, very, very simple and, and very appropriate structure. Your doctor doesn't get a kickback from the hospital. Your accountant doesn't get a kickback from the ATO. Um, 
I think I think realistically, it's not too hard to say financial advice should be a profession and treated as such in line with lawyers and doctors. Imagine, imagine lawyers getting kicked back from the courts if they were settled quickly. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, well, I'm not sure that's exactly right. But mm-hmm. in any case, we let financial planners do it. I think it's a shame for the industry. Frankly, we'd be a better industry without it, is my view. Yeah. Mate, uh, we talked a little bit about ASIC and APRA. There's not a whole lot to say there other than commissioner has encouraged them to be more litigious. Now, that kind of comes with a with a, a stick and a carrot, right? Mm. At some level, ASIC have settled a lot of cases because they frankly weren't sure they could win in court. And they felt like they get most of the most of what they wanted by settling out of court. Look, we could go to court, maybe you win, maybe I win. Give us a couple of million bucks, say you're sorry, and, and we'll call it we'll call it even. Um, to some degree, that's might be leading off the hook. The other degree, maybe they're getting an admission and, and, a, and a fine they wouldn't otherwise get. If, if they go to court and the bank wins, well, ASIC's kind of in a worse position than when they started. It's a, it's a tough decision to make. And I, I do have some degree of, of, of um, sympathy for ASIC. I would also say, by the way, and this is not being political, but both sides of politics have stripped ASIC of money over the last, I want to say, five or six years in different budgets. Um, so they haven't exactly been flush with cash to pursue these sort of cases. And at some level, if you can settle 15 cases or prosecute five, uh, again, maybe you're better off settling than, than trying to go to court. Yeah, I think I, I broadly agree. I, I think the thing is that by just suggesting that ASIC should be more lit, you know, litig- <laughs> yeah. um, should pursue more litigation, I think maybe that helps That's a good because point. you know yeah. that basically says okay, these guys <laughs> might come after us, but you know what is the chance that you know ASIC is going to yeah. win against um, you know CBA and in, in if it you know mm-hmm. it decides to take it, it's, you know CBA is going to probably drown them in 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 lawyer costs, yeah. right? So yeah. so I think you know being practical mm-hmm. is 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 useful. I think just saying. That you know, go after the criminals or go after people who are doing wrong is, is probably sufficient. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Actually, to, it's, it's the old Glenn Stevens jawbone, right? As long as you talk about it enough, people are going to be kind of yeah, convinced, yeah, convinced, talk, yeah. talked into so. uh, into submission. That's an interesting point. Okay, so we'll we'll give that one a tick. Um, I don't think there was any issue about this. What I liked about it was some of the consumer protections or consumer um, restitution that that Haynes recommended. Uh, one is that that you know where where I. Financial institution costs you money, then goes broke, uh, and can't then pay you back for any wrongdoing. And this is just wrongdoing, not not general, uh, not general kind of make goods. Um, that there should be a fund set up by the government to pay for some of that mm. stuff. Which, again, it's probably not big beer, but if you're an individual who loses a six, seven figure sum because you trusted the wrong advisor or the wrong fund manager or the wrong broker, it's kind of I, I kind of feel like as a society, it's not a bad thing to have in place to kind of help those people out mm. who, through no fault of their own, were, were dudded by their by their financial planner. When you think about it, they're going to go on a a pension or, or something else anyway because they lose all their money. So it's not a bad thing to have happen. Um, the other thing was the farm mediation. Again, I, I don't claim to be super close to our, to our rural cousins, uh, many of whom hopefully are listening to us in terms of the issues there. But we did hear allegations during the commission of um, farms farm debts being effectively called in, even though the borrower hadn't missed any payments. And so a change to the way farm loans are offered and the way they're foreclosed on has been suggested, mandated, recommended by the commissioner. Again, the government saying they will take that up. So that's kind of positive, right, for uh, just for consumers and, and for kind of agricultural providers across the board. I don't have any view on the farm mediation stuff because I really don't know much about it. So, cool. uh, so I'm going to skip that. But I, I think the fund of last resort mm. makes a lot of sense to me. It does. It's I kind think of, kind of nice. It's, as yeah, a side, it's a nice thing to, have. to do that, right? Yeah. Mate, the, so we talked about plans a little bit. One of the things they're going to have to, and this is, again, you talked about the jawbone, or I, I mentioned the jawbone, but you talked about Hain kind of putting the frighteners up the banks and saying, hey, ASIC's going to come after you. Um, financial planners are now going to have to very clearly tell their clients, well, when I say very clearly, that's, that's probably something we'll come back to. Mm. Financial planners are now going to have to tell their clients not, they can't be considered independent or unbiased when they give advice. Is that enough, do you think? I, I saw one, one comment on Twitter saying, well, I think it might have been Steve Johnson from, from Forager Funds saying, um, you know, Hain has kind of adopted behavioral finance here. And just by putting that in, 
hopefully people will take a second look and start to think, hang on, why is he telling me that? And what do I have to be aware of? So without forcing structural separation, he's kind of inviting customers and clients to just think twice about the advice they're getting. I'm a little less hopeful than Steve. I think he's right in terms of the general approach, though. If I think about Joe Average, uh, you know, in, as part of a one-hour conversation, the guy says, look, I'm, I've got to tell you this. Um, look, I've got to tell you that I'm not unbiased. I can't be independent because I'm owned by Commonwealth Bank, but it's okay. I'm going to give you the best advice anyway. Mm. If that's what he says in passing, <laughs> by the time he's finished that sentence, you're already thinking, well, no, it's okay. He seems like a good guy. He'll be okay. Mm. I wish I had more faith in my fellow humans, and I don't mean that in a general sense, but in this particular sense, I think if you're a financial planner, you don't know much about financial advice, and that's not us. It's not the people listening to this probably, but it's our mothers, sisters, brothers, daughters, husbands, fathers. Um, who don't necessarily know as much about finance. Is that enough to kind of make people wary and second-guess some of the advice they're getting? I'd actually agree with you. I think it's not. Because, because uh, again, I, I think, you know, it's a actually note, right? man- mandating independence is different from declaring con- <laughs> yeah, diff- dec- right. declaring uh, conflict, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's that's the problem here. Yep. And it can be always mentioned in passing or it can be mentioned in a way that it doesn't register. Right. Um, but there are, I believe, provisions here that, you know, if you didn't do it properly, then you could essentially be hauled in front of, you know, for... Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. So, so those are things that there. Maybe that helps. Yep. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean... I think I think uh, someone, who might again have been Steve, uh, something like, you know, clients should have to either say out loud or write down I know you're not independent and you're not unbiased and then sign the name against it as, as an extra level of, <laughs> I reckon that'd go most of the way, right? When you've got to write the words, I know this person is un, is biased mm. and they have to sign that. Yeah, maybe that, that does that's, it. I like that a lot. Um, mm. Other people have said they'll bury it in page 120 in the footnotes in six point font, yeah. which probably is also possible, right? Possible. The government hopefully will legislate accordingly, but uh, yeah, so we don't, yeah, we don't yet yeah. Know. yeah, maybe legislation will help. <laughs> so, but. All right. Now, Matt, I, I want to just finish off by digging into the mortgage brokers. You had a, you had a, you had a say, I'm going to have a say, and you can, you can rejoin uh, that, that conversation. In terms of the brokers, I, I'm, I'm seriously split. I think I understand Commissioner Haynes' approach around removing a layer of incentive to what either might be bad behavior or simply unwanted outcomes for people. The more people trying to get you to borrow more, the bigger the chance you're going to borrow more. And you made the point that banks are probably the bigger issue there, and I think I agree with you. Um, but anything you can do to kind of move down that path, I think, is important. We also know from behavioral finance, again, as you said, that at some level, people aren't going to pay out of pocket, right? And this is, this is, the, this is, this is the amazing thing. And look, it's not surprising necessarily. You think about a, a Sydney side of taking out a $700,000 mortgage, right? Over 30 years, the amount of interest they can save by paying a quarter of a point less, probably in a year, let alone over a 30-year loan, mm. is well and truly worth multiples of what you'd have to pay a mortgage broker, and yet people won't. Mm-hmm. Because a dollar today, a dollar coming out of the pocket, it's why funds exist. If, if Fund managers, by the way, are allowed to deduct their fees from account balances as well. If you were to hand over your money every 12 months to a fund manager, literally mm. out of your back pocket, mm. write him a check, send him a transfer, there'd be a whole lot less fund manager investors. Well, the industry would investors. die. Right, right. <laughs> because people just, they, they treat yeah. money differently. And, and yeah. we know rationally, hopefully all of us listening to this are, are thinking, well, hang on, if I, can, if I can save 10 grand by spending two, I should do it. And mm. of course you should. That, that's like, it's rule number one, right? If you, if you gave me two, two grand, I gave you 10 grand back. I reckon you'd take that deal every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And yet most of us, and I can't even say I wouldn't, I wouldn't be immune for this myself. I, I'm not entirely sure. If I had to pay two grand to a broker, would I do one? Or would I say, well, I'll be right, I'll do it myself. I, can't, I, I know, I know the answer. what I should do. I, I wouldn't do it. Right. I know I what I should do, do but I'm not, I'm not, I hope I would, right? I, I, I hope I'd be smart <laughs> enough, sensible enough to do it. But at some level, even though we know we could possibly yeah. save, you know, literally five, maybe even six figures over a 30-year loan, quite literally, because you pay that much interest over 30 years. Um, it, it's just too tempting not to, right? Yeah, exactly. So, net-net. I guess you're, I think I hear you coming down the, on the side of saying, well, 
it's kind of not perfect, but brokers are better than no brokers because they probably end up with people paying less overall for their loans? Well, I think it creates competition, exposes people to different options. Mm. And uh, uh, to me, they're not really the problem, right? If people are borrowing more, they're borrowing, you know, unscrupulously, that's really for the banks to check. They're right. the guys who are just supposed to be the intermediaries to inform. You know, it's, it's they're basically the matchmakers, right? The, the, the yeah. end party still, you know, are the ones who are shaking their hand. Except they could kind of be cheerleaders, right? Like if you're a broker and you know you're going to get 25% more if you can get someone to borrow 800000 rather than 600000 you can kind of convince them that they can afford that bigger house. And once you apply for more just in case, and I can imagine a case where people are paying more interest, they're borrowing, they don't necessarily go broke or have bad debts, just they're borrowing more than they, they would otherwise choose to just because they're egged on. They can still pay the loan off. But if I was going to borrow a million-dollar house and I buy a $1.2 million house because the broker says I can afford it, so I start to think, maybe I could afford that place. I might go to the extra bedroom. You know, that, that to some degree, that, that leads people to potentially borrow more, pay more in interest. I still think it's a net negative from that perspective. It may not be a net negative overall, though, when you consider the competition. But, but, but take this $1.2 million house example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the $1.2 million house, somebody gets this extra bedroom. Maybe they, you know, their dog sleeps there and, and, they, and they're very happy about it. <laughs> Man, that's See, a pampered dog. Just so, gets so, no bedroom. How, how do you quantify the <laughs> happiness that you get from that extra bedroom that the dog sleeps in? It's more so, just the incentivization, though, mate. They, they, were, they came in not intending to and they walked out borrowing more because the broker talked them into well, it. You've got to believe that two, It's adults making decisions here, right? I mean, the, the, adult, the borrower is an adult and the bank, I hope, is an adult. Well, we say the same about financial planners. We say the same about people taking insurance. Like, uh-huh. at some level, the whole Royal Commission isn't worthwhile if we're going to say to people, well, you're all adults, deal with it yourselves. If, if we think like that, then we shouldn't have any dealers uh, selling cars. We shouldn't have car salespeople because they, you know, they're always trying to upgrade you to stuff, mm-hmm. right? Everybody's trying to upgrade you to stuff. We shouldn't allow the, the stores to have the sales on because, you know, they just jack up the price by 30% and give you a 20% discount and then make you buy stuff, right? So, Anik, I mean, there's a Doc, whole... Doc there's Anna, a whole, Anarchy Mahanti over there, there, Mahanti. there is a whole slew of stuff <laughs> that is, you know, in this world. Sure. There's such a consumer-driven world. There's sure. a whole slew around, you know, buy this, go to that holiday, you know, upsize this. You know, McDonald's should not be able to upsize uh, the Coke, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> that has a healthy... So, I, I think there's ban- a whole, Banning, do you want fries with that? I can get behind that. I can get behind a ban on do you want fries with that, just quietly. <laughs> so, if I never get asked do you want fries with that again, I would pay more money for that. So we, we live in a world of upsizing, right? I mean, you know... Supersize so, me, super baby. Supersize something. So I, I think, you know, you know it's, I just think... If you have to ban upsizing, ban it across the society. I mean, why, why target? You know, and it's not like you know, I. It's not like I have thousands of mortgage broker friends or anything like that. I just, I just find it's like silly. It's like you know. Just, what? just to be clear, you don't have a mortgage broking business, do you? Yeah, and we don't, no, I okay. have nothing just, to. In, just, in, just for full disclosure. In, yeah, for full disclosure, <laughs> I've only ever used mortgage brokers once. I think I might have used them once or twice. Yeah, yeah. and I've used them once, and I changed, and then I figured, you know, I can do my online research, and I can mm-hmm. move my loan to even better ones. In fact, I didn't get a great deal with my mortgage broker. I, I right. thought I got a better deal my, by myself, but it's still, I just in principle, I think this is this <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> so I think it doesn't solve actually the problem. People will still. Try to upsize. Whoever wants to upsize will upsize, and and if we're really worried about people's debt, then we are addressing the wrong wrong problem. Um, you know, it's at the wrong end of the stick. So that's Mate, my. You're opinion. entitled to your opinion. You just happen to be wrong. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I look. I, I actually. I think I, I come down broadly on your side, not from a responsibility perspective, but just from a straight out. I think. I think the existence of brokers probably means lower costs overall and i think that's worth doing i don't i don't believe the upside of removing them from the system which effectively is what they do would kill the industry right outright yeah. um they'd shrink by 95 percent, i'm sure um only people who had the disposable income or who could genuinely you know find five grand to save a million bucks over a life of a five million dollar loan yeah. that's a whole different universe of people um i, I yeah as i said i, I kind of I, I i understand hayne's point this one i particularly kind of i think he's probably overshot a little bit 
frankly, you know, mortgage bro- if you're going to let vertical integration exist and you're not going to ban conflicted planners, yeah. but you're going to get rid of mortgage brokers, I, I kind of feel like the, the pointy end of the stick is probably in the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Mate, we're done. Do you have anything else you want to say about the Royal Commission? It's all about upsizing. <laughs> <laughs> Supersized docs. Supersized. That might be a new nickname. And Ivan supersized my heart. We'll see. We'll see. Right. I'll probably stick with doc, I think. Thank Is that you. all right? Yeah, all that's right. fine. Fools, for the one or two of you that probably are our, our, our spouses and, and, uh, and our friends, maybe not even them, thanks for sticking with us for the extra PS section of this particular podcast. We hope it was fun. We hope it was enlightening. We try to make it at least a little bit interesting and, and a bit educational as well. Long story short, another commission in five or seven years when the banks get up to their old tricks? Yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> that's a depressing thought. Thanks for listening. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.